Welcome to the Moving Forward Podcast. Today, we're talking to Dylan Cronin. Say hi, Dylan. Hello. Dylan is a host of Left in the Basement podcast. Yeah. And there's actually three of us. Uh, one, one is kind of the guy in the chair. Um, and we've got two sort of different segments going on right now where one's more like current event based and the other one's more interview style. So, How long have you guys been doing the pod? Well, uh, it sort of started as just a conversation with a, uh, a good friend of mine. Uh, his name's Blaine. We went to uh, community college first together before we transferred and went our separate ways to university. Um, we just kind of maintained contact. And then last October, we were just sitting in his basement hanging out. And we were like, you know, we feel like we're being led to do something bigger than go to work, go home, be tired and go to sleep. So we just started putting all this together just through a few hundred dollars at a project. And uh, we ended up actually recording our first episode in December. So we're pretty new to this thing. And uh, we'll be starting recording again in May. I like to see what's uh, what's new on the potosphere. Um, and what's your association with uh, Yang Gang? Uh, let's see. So I actually, I'm kind of, I don't want to say an OG Yang ganger here, but, um, I was following Andrew Yang when he had 18,000 followers and I actually tweeted something to Yang at one point. He said, thank you as a public reply. And I was like, oh my God, I'm in like, I'm, I'm a part of it. <laughs> so, um, I read his book, uh, the war on normal people, and that's kind of how we get part of our working title for uh, our description of the podcast, which is, you know, every episode we start with, you know, I'm Dylan, I'm Blaine, this is Left in the Basement, where we talk to normal working class people about politics and philosophy, who it always affects the most, which is sort of Yang's bread and butter. You know, he talks a lot about normal people. And when you think normal, you think just average American working 40 hours a week, if not more, making you know, a, a, a decent salary, most of the time, blue collar work. And that, that's kind of who we aim to have on our podcast most of the time. So Andrew Yang really shaped a lot of our, uh, um, kind of our framework for what, what we're, what we're doing now. So. Yeah. A lot of, uh, blue collar jobs actually pay better than a lot of lower entry level white collar jobs. Um, and that's actually one of the things that drew me to Yang was he said, Hey, maybe we should teach more people to do like productive work with their hands that pays well and not expect everybody to go through a four-year college because when you you know the the percentage of the population that's in college used to be like the, the graduates college used to be like five or ten percent and now it's up to 20 25 percent and it's only going to go higher that's a good thing in the sense that you have a generally more educated population and i really believe that education has its own value regardless of work but Inevitably, what that means is you it massively increase double or triple the supply of labor for certain low level entry level white collar jobs. So a lot of millennials graduated and didn't couldn't really find work that paid well enough to pay for their student loans and so forth. There are a lot of that's a perfect example of how there are a lot of unintended negative side effects to well-intended policy. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And uh, as someone who is a millennial with a tremendous amount of student debt from college, I can 100% agree with you there. Uh, one of the things that Andrew Yang really talks about that I find the most valuable when it comes to education is his um, uh, his policy regarding high school students uh, essentially transferring or being transfer students for their senior year. I think I remember reading that in his book where, you know, it produces that that dynamism or um, that sort of 
diversity that college can bring you. I think that is the biggest thing that sort of propelled me from my small rural town upbringing in the Southern Baptist Church to essentially a leftist and uh, as far left as you can get without just being a Marxist, honestly. So um, just being exposed to other cultures, being around other people who disagree with me um, and expose me to uh, completely new ways of life. And that is the biggest benefit I've got from college, honestly. Yeah. Well, if you talk to a communist or a socialist, they will tell you that you can't be a leftist. You're not a real leftist unless you are a communist or a socialist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you're a centrist or maybe even right wing, Dylan. I'm sure you've no. been told that. <laughs> no, well, you know, I mean, you said that I was a sensible leftist, so I would I would prefer to stick with that title. But I can definitely uh, the uh, the gatekeeping among the left can be uh, pretty exhausting. I agree. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of infighting going on there. At the end of the podcast, I'll invite you to tell everybody this again. But for now, why don't you go ahead and say, where can people find your podcast, Dylan? Yeah, so uh, our current website is not up just yet. But if you go to leftinthebasement.com, it will forward you to our anchor.fm page. Um, and there you can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, I think pretty much any pod, any platform you get your podcast on you can listen to it there and the anchor page actually has a support function um and if you like what you hear um you know there's no obligation of course it's all free but we would rather not sell out to blue apron or uh, one of those other places like the cash app to <laughs> keep our keep our program going so if you feel so inclined you know just give 99 cents a month we would greatly appreciate it yeah for sure i always encourage our listeners to support as many yang content creators as they can afford uh not everybody can of course but if they can um please do go support dylan let's help them grow let's help them help yang and uh and and you know it's more than yang too it's it's a it's a whole movement exactly. now this humanity first thing is bigger than yang and uh whatever happens with him in the mayor race for new york uh that movement will live on yeah it's looking good for him in new york i'm pretty excited about that yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Did you notice he's under attack right now? Like Twitter is giving him a bunch of flack because somebody on on Twitter asked him if he chokes bitches or if he thinks it's okay to choke bitches or something. <laughs> Pretty sure I the person that. who asked that question follows me on Twitter, actually. I saw and, that. Yeah, and I saw Yang, that. Yang said something innocuous, like, well, it kind of depends on what your partner's into, right? Um, which is also a very, like, affirming of, like, consensual kink and very sex positive. And we're talking about New York City here, right? We're not talking about Alabama or Afghanistan, you know? <laughs> um, but somehow, somehow, uh, the media, uh, um, that the aspects of the media that oppose Yang's candidacy jumped on that as if that's a sign that Andrew Yang is a sexist, misogynist. He laughs. He makes light of violence against women, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, yeah, uh, right before this uh Right before we sat down to record this, I think I tweeted out something like, let's be clear, there is absolutely nothing progressive or feminist about being puritanically sex negative. And in New York City in the 21st century, for goodness sake. Yeah, yeah, I, t I totally agree with that. I actually, I found that TikTok and I actually sent it to a, a mutual friend of ours, Chet, who's been on the podcast before and he he lost his mind. He thought it was really funny. <laughs> It's much ado about nothing, but you know, um, they'll, they'll say and do whatever they can to, to hurt him. It seems. Um, and I, I, I had one person argue with me and say, 
well, you know, it's because the women who consent to that, they're not really consenting to it. They have internalized misogyny or something like that. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, wait a second. Right. My wife has a degree in economics and another in German literature from Bryn Mawr, which is a feminist women's college. It's about as progressive as you could possibly get. They dance around a maypole and sing, hey, ho, hey, ho, the patriarchy's got to go. That is like part of their college tradition. You know what I mean? And yeah. then she got her master's at USC uh, School of the Cinematic Arts in critical theory, no less. Right. So she's about as woke as you can get. And according to these crazy people, my wife has internalized misogyny because she likes, you know, to be submissive in bed. No, no. I, I call bullshit on that puritanical sex negative crap. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. All right. So um, moving into the main topic. I'm thinking about calling this episode Welcome to Crazy Town. You want to tell the listeners why, Dylan? Yeah, absolutely. So um, growing up, I grew up in rural North Georgia uh, in a small town of about 100 people. Um, My uh, upbringing was in the Southern Baptist Church, and I didn't really get out until I moved to college when I was 18. Um, and the district that I'm actually from is Marjorie Taylor Greene's district. Um, and I am actually planning to go back there. I, I, I go back there frequently to see my dad, who you know still lives there. And um, it's uh, not much has changed, honestly, other than my family. You know, that, them being exposed to me has sort of brought them a little closer to the left. You know, they're they're more center left now. And I actually, funny enough, I got them to vote for the very first time in their lives this past election. They voted for Biden and for. Warnock and uh, Ossoff. And look what happened. You know, it's it, it's one of those things where finally they decide to do something and they actually see the results. So it was very encouraging to them and to me to uh, see that happen. But um, the people from that district, uh, we'll talk outside of my family. Um, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is kind of the spokesperson for that, right? Uh, when you're saying in crazy town, um, and it's not just in Georgia, it's, it's everywhere. Like in, even in Colorado, a blue state traditionally, uh, I don't remember her name, Lauren Brobert or Bobart yeah, or Bobert. I think it is. Yeah, it seems to be happening everywhere with um, with just a bunch of puzzled faces. You know, everybody is like, "What is happening?" People just have this feeling of the normalcy is starting to just come down, and people are shocked, and they really don't know what's happening because they don't talk to those people. And that's sort of why we started this program, this podcast, uh, Left in the Basement, to talk to specifically people like that. Like our first guest was somebody from my hometown or near my hometown, and he's a Trump voter and identifies as a moderate, like you and I were talking about previously before the podcast. That, that's a whole other phenomenon, uh, moderates who voted for Trump. Um, just to kind of – because what seems to be happening is we're focusing too much on the what they think. And not why they think it and how they arrive to those conclusions. So hopefully we can figure something out today talking about it. Yeah, and and crazy seems to sell, you know? I mean, for better or worse, before um, the internet made it, and not just the internet, but the modern internet, made it easy for people to make small dollar donations on their phone while they're waiting in line for coffee or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Before that, Politicians had to go more to corporate interests, lobbyists, um, special interests, uh, larger dollar donors, 
um, you know, a, a small dollar donor would have been like, oh, sure, I'll, you know, pay $500 to go to, you know, a, a, a fundraiser, you know, for Hillary Clinton or whatever, right? That wasn't that long ago. I remember being in college, and I'm only 36 now. I was in college for 10 years, but still. I remember being in college in Ashland, Oregon, and going to a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton at this kind of like cheesy old hotel there. Um, and that's just how things were done back then. You know, if you were upper middle class, that's how you supported a candidate. Um, today, you know, regular people who are maybe more cynical, more apathetic, probably would would consider it super hoity-toity to go to a $500 dinner. They can write, you know, they can not even write a check. They don't even have to write a check, right? They could just send somebody $5 or $10 over the phone. Um, in the case of Donald Trump, he can trick you into making it monthly even though you don't want to, <laughs> right? And the point is you can raise millions of dollars. Marjorie Taylor Greene is, I think, objectively insane, and yeah. she raised something like three and a half million dollars. That's not coming from corporations. That's not coming from lobbyists or special interests, the usual boogeymen of the left. That's coming from regular working class Joes. What's going on, Dylan? And that's not even just to kind of follow up on that. That's not even just in Georgia. That's all 50 states. That is something else that has made this um uh, I guess expedited this this sort of phenomenon we have here where it made it possible for her to raise that much money because she's appealing to people in Utah, to people in Montana, to people in Michigan, Pennsylvania, all over the country. We're able to see um, we're able to donate to candidates that aren't even in our state for representative races. Right. So um, we have this sort of it's hard to say. I mean, it, it, what what I think is happening here is we are seeing a distortion of the way people view time in our politics or time in general. So I just want to kind of quote our um, one of my favorite historians, which is uh, Timothy Snyder. He talks a lot about uh, ideas and how ideas matter. And even if you say that ideas don't matter, that's still a bad idea. And people like Marjorie Greene, people like Donald Trump, people like all these I mean, even, even some, to an extent, some on the left as well, we have been perpetuating people into this idea of what Timothy Snyder calls the politics of inevitability and the politics of eternity. So the politics of inevitability just tell us sort of the way that we view time is we already know the rules of history, right? We know that one thing leads to another. There's going to be progress. Uh, we know that you know what we do or say doesn't really matter too much, and we don't really have to pay attention, right? So it's sort of this uh, sleepwalking through life politics kind of thing, where Trump and Marjorie Green and these extreme crazy characters, like we're talking about, they've woke people up, especially like more centrist liberal people who are just going to brunch and going about their day, right? Like these five hundred dollar dinner campaign people who just expect things to go the way that they go, right? They they have interrupted that that sense of security that comes with just normal electoral politics where the Republicans and Democrats were essentially the same person, right? We're just not seeing that anymore. And part of that is due to the internet, social media, and the like how easy it is. Like you were saying, it's just so easy. You're standing in line, like I even said for my podcast, you know, you can just click 99 cents, Apple pay a month, boom, done, going about your day. I think it's just the convenience. 
Yeah, the problem here, though, is that democracy, you know, in in liberal democracy, you Mm -hmm. have constitutional protections of individual liberties against majoritarian rule, right? You have decentralized power, you have separate but equal branches of government, etc., right? Um, you have uh, representation, so you have to elect a representative. You don't have a lot of direct direct democracy, generally speaking, in a liberal democracy. You have some of that at the local level, but you don't you don't do a direct democratic vote on what the tax rate should be at the federal level, that sort of thing, right? Um, in liberal democracy, all of these things and more um, are there to actually preserve the democratic system from those who would try to undermine democracy through the democratic process, which is mm-hmm. what populism is. Yes. Um, and the average voter might think, and I want to hear it from you, Dylan, because you're spending some time talking to Trump voters and so forth. And I think that's very noble of you. And it's very in the spirit of this podcast. So I want to get your input on this. But, you know, we, we see people who call themselves moderates who are voting for Trump, partially because they're persuaded that you know, Joe Biden is secretly a puppet of the neo-Marxist, you know, far left or whatever, right? Which if you talk to an actual far leftist, you know, that's laughable because they hate Joe Biden. Um, But they believe it because they don't talk to people on the left, etc. And also they see certain things about Trump, you know, like Trump, Trump, Trump's um, style of populism. Steve Bannon calls it economic populism. Steve Bannon, the guy who calls himself a Leninist. I mean, the, the 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 idea that you know uh, regular workers are being screwed by globalization, et cetera, et cetera, it sounds a little bit like Bernie Sanders in some ways. So I can see how somebody who thinks of themselves as on the right could see Trump saying things like that and think, oh, Trump's kind of a moderate. Maybe he's even a centrist. He's he's looking out for the little guy. He's uh, he's maybe he's not like a Marxist or a trade unionist unionist kind of leftist, but he's at least worried about the way that. Uh, you know, uh, free trade capitalism isn't working out so well for the average Joe in America. And so they see that and they think moderate. And in a sense, I guess that's kind of true. I mean, that would put lump- Trump significantly to my left economically and to the left of Joe Biden, frankly, economically on that particular issue. Um, so I can see how somebody might read that as moderate. But the problem is he's also illiberal. He's a populist. He 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 wants to destroy democracy itself. And and the way that populists try to do that through the democratic process is they want to put in a strong man who's going to run roughshod over the institutions that actually preserve liberal democracy. And and you see people like Erdogan in Turkey openly calling for illiberal democracy, which is a an oxymoron. It never works. Democracies topple once uh, those liberal protections fall apart. So um, given that fact, Trump isn't a moderate, right? But I can see how somebody would perceive him as a moderate. In fact, Trump is a radical threat to our American way of life. Yeah, I I completely agree. And um, another term that I would want to run by you, it's it's a fairly new term here that also Timothy Snyder references called sadopopulism. Um, This is uh, kind of phenomenon that we find like it, it, it seems like when you're describing Trump, uh, you know, he's not a moderate, but he's not, you know, f- far right wing, but he's not this. That's on purpose. So a sado populist, according to Snyder, would be um, it, it. They have no policy. What policy proposals does Trump actually have? And if they were to be implemented, would they do any good? So 
you know, if we if we think about, uh, you know, a sado populist wouldn't want to have markets because other people can rise to the top of those. So if you're on the right, you don't want to have free markets because people can still rise to the top. If you redistribute wealth, like some on the left want to do, people can finally breathe for a moment and rise up to the top and take over, right? So the question really becomes, how do I remain in power? How do I make policy? And how do I appear to be democratic while my intentions are not that? Um, Trump is like, like you said, he's referred to sometimes as a populist figure, but it it seems a little too vague uh, because of the other populist figures we have. So if we think of, I'm sure you mentioned Bernie Sanders before, um, for some of Bernie Sanders' fault, he does actually have policy that he mentions that if implemented, however it were to be implemented, would help the vast majority of working Americans. We'll just think of Medicare for all. We'll think of something on climate change. These are, if implemented, would be positives for the majority of the working class people. However, Trump and Bernie seem to attract the sort of same types of people who are in hardship and struggling. But the difference here would be with authoritarian figures like Trump, what we see are policies that if implemented would would directly hurt and damage the exact people who got him elected and voted for him, like the people in Marjorie Taylor Greene's district. So for example, there's a strong correlation between Trump's uh, constituents and the opioid epidemic, uh, diseases of despair, as a lot of people call them. Trump is offering no solution to these problems, yet these people are the ones who are voting for this man who wants to cut taxes for the rich. And the more you cut taxes for the rich, we've seen since the 80s that trickle-down economics is not working. It's not even a theory that we can entertain anymore. Right. We have the data to back it up. It's not working. The level of income inequality is close to that of the 1930s around the Great Depression. You know, it's not quite there, but we're getting there. So this sort of intentional infliction of pain serves a purpose. Um, That purpose is to if we go back to what I was saying earlier about the politics of inevitability. So what happens when politics of inevitability breaks when it finally when people snap? When they wake up from a Trump authoritarian-like figure, you can enter into what's called the politics of eternity. Now, this is – there are two ends of this where we find our crazies, right, where you're talking about the far left and the far right. It is this sort of state of mind and looking at the world where you absolve yourself of any responsibility. Nothing is really your fault because um, you can't do anything about it. Uh, things are just bad and they're going to be bad. There's nothing we can do. Um, And you're more susceptible to uh, some more nostalgic uh, sort of uh, make America great again. So Trump really uses this sort of self, this, this intentional infliction of pain to distort people's perception of time and make them wish that things would go back to the way they used to be. I understand the appeal of nostalgia um, mm-hmm. to a certain extent. Um, obviously, that isn't as likely to be held by a black person in America or a woman in America or a gay person in America, right? right. Um, but I could see how you know a cis white um, and 
working class person might look at the situation and say, oh, it used to be better. It used to be better when there was less competition for jobs because brown mm-hmm. people wouldn't compete for the same jobs as me right, or right. or because women wouldn't compete for the same jobs as me. Right. Yeah. Well, let me, um, let me just push and, back on well, that oh, really quick. Just, just oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're good. You're good. You're good. You sure? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're fine. You're fine. Uh, did I cut you off? No, no, no. No, you're good. Go ahead. Finish. But the thing, the thing about the, the the nostalgia, though, is that Trump's style of it, and this is coming from um, I'm more conservative than you and certainly more right wing than you in, in a lot of ways. And when I hear Donald Trump speak, he sounds like the most anti-patriotic president of my lifetime. Make America great again implies that America stopped being great at some point. Well, that's bullshit. Um, and. And, and we, you know, remember when he did that interview on Fox News where somebody asked about Vladimir Putin killing people and doing all these awful things? And Trump said, well, do you think our hands are so clean? I mean, again, that sounds to me like something that an anti-American far left person who calls America imperialist and all of that crap and the CIA is corrupt and blah, blah, blah. That's how Trump talks. I mean, he called he called people um, in his administration um, rats for cooperating with the FBI. I mean, he's just, just like a deeply anti-American figure. Yeah, um, I, I don't want to really comment too much on imperialism and uh, you know the 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 sort of view of America that you're describing. But I would say that he, him, and figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene, when when, when we refer to going back, when we view um, the past as the solution to the present moment, instead of more uh, liberal-centered uh, uh, policy, where the way politics is supposed to work, we are in the present moment and we are looking to the future. You and someone else may say, this is how I would want to make a better future for America. And then you come and say, well, I think we should do it this way. And we sort of meet in the middle and we try to do the best thing for everybody for the future. However, what seems to be happening is we have a, we had and still continue to have this sort of government that just acts as uh, sort of an arbiter between these two feuding sides that are stuck in the eternal present, where we are constantly fighting about how it used to be, who the enemy is now, and what we can do against each other. And nobody is talking about policy. So if we're talking about making America great again, what we would be talking about, if that were to be the case, let's just entertain the idea. Unions have been on the decline for years. Unions were a really great way for worker solidarity to take place in this country, demand better wages. There are some issues with unions, sure, but by and large, they're a good thing for workers. Seems to uh, me the left <laughs> likes unions unless it's a police union. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like I said, there are some And, and they like other public sector unions, too. They love teacher unions. Yeah. Yeah. And and like I said, I mean, there are problems with certain unions uh, overextending and overreaching some of their powers um, for better or for worse. Um, But the unions are on the decline. Um, We can talk about the uh, redistribution of wealth or uh, the New Deal, uh, sort of expanding government and expanding the welfare state for people who are in dire poverty, essentially, uh, and sort of helping people get back on their legs. Right. And we can also think about the education system how that was robust. And we had some of the best education numbers in the 50s and 60s, I believe, uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s, post-World War II. 
um, these things are not the case anymore. You know, your, your, your chances of being better than your doing better than your parents, you know, 60 or 70 years ago was about like nine and 10 or something. It, it was, it was great. Uh, over the years and over the decades, it's just dramatically decreased to where for millennials and young adults, uh, the chances of you living in your parents' house right now is about 40%. So if we're talking about make America great, Trump is not talking about policy. It's it's not about the future. It's about going back. Back to what? It doesn't he he doesn't implement any actual policy that would help those who are hurting. Instead, he inflicts the pain with his policies, the 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 few that he has, other than just scaling things back and not replacing them. Like like when he's I mean I'm still waiting on that healthcare plan, aren't you? Uh, the repeal yeah, and replace yeah, Obamacare. No, again, that's another perfect <laughs> example of it. Like I can see how somebody might think Trump is a moderate, and in some in some weird ways, he superficially is. I mean, in the Republican primary, he was the candidate who kept saying, "We're not going to cut Social Security, we're not going to cut Medicare." Right? Um, he talked about healthcare. He 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 attacked Obamacare, but. He at- but he attacked it on the grounds that, you know, uh, there's the mandate and people have to pay for it. People don't like paying for stuff. Right. 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 People don't like that. So he attacked that. But then but then without using the term universal health care, he basically described universal health care and we were going to somehow get it. But without actually paying for it or anything like that. Right. Um, I, I, I get your point about not having specific policies, and I think that's partially just because Trump and most of his voters, frankly, are deeply anti-intellectual. They don't read. Um, and so if some, they wouldn't know whether he has a policy or not, to be frank, right? It, but it, but, yeah. but the way he talks about policy on the surface, he sounds kind of moderate, doesn't he? Um, he sounds anti-establishment. He sounds very, uh, I mean, populistic, like you said before. Yeah, and I, I do like the term Sado populist because I don't believe for a second that Trump cares about these people at all. Um an amusing anecdote, my my parents actually met Trump once. My dad uh is in the golf business <laughs> and he sent Trump a putter. This was way back, it must have been like the nineties, early nineties, I think. Um he sent Trump a putter and uh and Trump thanked him for it by inviting him and giving him a free suite at one of his casinos and I think it was Atlantic City or something I was a kid at the time so I only hear heard about this story um from my parents but yeah apparently he he's actually like a really nice likable guy in person to a certain kind of person you know right um to the real american patriots right? yeah to you know to the kinds of people who can send him free putters because they own a golf company <laughs> But but he doesn't he has nothing but contempt for the average working class person. You know, I don't agree. And I want to push back a little bit on what you said about Bernie Sanders, policies. But, mm-hmm. you know, regardless of our disagreement about whether or not those would be good policies, I think we can agree that Sanders seems to truly care about the average worker. Um, if anything, I think his ideas are just misguided. But Trump, he doesn't care. He doesn't care at all. I, I read a, uh, a, a New York Times columnist. Um, back when Trump was running. Uh, so this was like, what, 2015? Um, New York Times columnist did an interview with Trump in Trump's, one of Trump's town cars. And um, and a woman, one of his supporters, was shouting at, at him, God bless you, Donald Trump. Thank you so much, right? And she's like just filled with sincerity. She really believes that Trump is going to be the champion of the working class. And Trump turns to the the reporter, who he knows is going to write this. He must have known it, and says, "Isn't that pathetic?" 
I believe that reporter. I think that happened. Yeah, I I mean, I, I 100 percent agree, too. I mean, it's uh, I don't know how familiar you are with um, uh, WWE uh, professional wrestling. But Donald Trump, I mean, he was on WWE for a while and he governs in the same way. It's all spectacle. Um, and it's meant to be that way. Anytime it, it also says something about him that he was trying to kind of buddy up to the Times reporter, right? Because in public, New York Times is fake news. But, you know, like, think about it. The only reason a narcissist like him would care so much about what the Times prints about him is because he desperately wants to be liked by them. He wants to be loved by the elite of Manhattan, and he just isn't. <laughs> it's so exactly. sad in a way. Um, well, you know, it's, it's also dangerous, um, because a big, a big part of what's happening, like you said, with these, uh, in, in rural Georgia and Appalachia in a lot of these red States uh, is the uh, kind of the era of post-truth. I mean, we're, we're in a place where anything that is unflattering, anything that is upsetting to you is fake. Um, and Donald Trump is kind of the champion of, or the, uh, the, the sort of, uh, spearhead of that movement. And it seems that now he's, I don't want to say he's gone, but he's sort of fading from the spotlight. Marjorie's kind of picked up that torch for him. And I would say that she's a little different in the sense that she seems more motivated, more energized, more, it's not about her. It's about a movement. I, I know that you 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 probably saw that she had just started the um, a new caucus, or she's trying to start a new caucus. This came out yesterday. I'd have to look into it, but I know that the uh, the the general uh, sort of sentiment is to protect uh, traditional Anglo-Saxon politics. Those are her words. So we're in a place where it almost just seems Trump ran on some sort of joke. And just to prove to himself that he could, and those underneath him have sort of taken over, and it's kind of gotten out of control. Well, and it is a perfect example of why liberal democracies last and illiberal ones don't. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we want to give people the benefit of the doubt, right? And, and assume that if you give the majority power, that the wisdom of the majority will know what's best. That's not always true. Um, and I think that the fact that, uh, the small dollar donations are going to the crazies like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boeber and Donald Trump, um, and the usual boogeymen of the left, the corporations, et cetera, big dollar donors are tend to be going to the democratic establishment at this point. What that suggests to me is that there is this tension where, um, one of the values of liberalism, which is the ideology of those elites of which we're speaking, one of the values of liberalism is that you really believe that in, in um, that the, the average person should have a say in government, right? Democracy is, is a key component of, of liberalism as a political philosophy. But at the same time, um, it, the evidence seems to suggest that regular Joes are at a bare minimum taking the fruits of the institutions that have made modern civilization with all its flaws, still the greatest society in the history of the human race. I'm not just speaking about the United States, but liberal democracies generally, historically, enormously great places to live. Um, 
they're taking it for granted and they're willing to blow it all up. <laughs> right. So there is this weird tension where we, we, we believe in democracy and I do believe in democracy. Um, but maybe, maybe we're in a moment where democracy needs to be saved from itself in a way. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that's, uh, I think that's a really good point. Uh, democracy needs to be saved from itself because it, Back to the sort of politics of inevitability. I, j- I just love that term. Uh, where some of the, one of the dangers is, you know, capitalism inevitably leads to democracy, and everything's going to be fine. I mean, I'm sure that we know that even even some of the most uh, steadfast capitalists can understand that completely unchecked and unregulated capitalism is not the way to go. And we're sort of we were sort of flying by just assuming that things would just be better just because they're happening. And that's just not the case. Things are accumulating all at the top. And the people at the bottom, like you said, the working class are sort of blinded to that because someone like Trump, someone like Marjorie Green is at the top telling them, well, you know, it's not that it's really your neighbors. It's the neighbors who don't look like you. Uh, they're the ones who, uh, if only we can get rid of them and preserve the traditional Anglo-Saxon uh, style of politics, then uh, if only we can go back to the way things used to be, the good old days, uh, the, uh, you know, that the the terrible con of America first, that sort of uh, nostalgic feel where things just used to be better. And even things, it doesn't matter if things were better. All that matters is that you believe they used to be better and that they can be better again, if only we can get rid of, if only we can leave the degenerates behind. That's essentially what, what seems to be happening, especially in small communities, because what's happening is this phenomenon of Marjorie Green, it's not new. All she's doing is saying the quiet parts out loud. She's just, I can give you an example. So when I was younger, um, I was, I was in the parking lot of my church and, um, there was, uh, there was someone's daughter was, dating a new person and the new person happened to be black and she was white and their parents were talking about this new relationship. And as they're talking to each other with all white people around, they're like, yeah. And uh, I heard that he's black and like whispered it, you know? So, so physically we like quite literally, she is saying it out loud. Some of these ugly recurring or, or reminiscent language of, It's just astonishing that so many people are surprised by a Marjorie Green, if that makes sense. Right. But I mean, like, we don't we don't even have to go to the racism in order to see what's wrong with her. I mean, this is a woman who mm-hmm. defended a terrorist assault on the Capitol um, where the vice president of her own party um, would have been hung if not for the intervention of police officers, um, some of whom are dead now. I mean, she is a pro-terrorist politician. I mean, the level of insanity there is, it's quite, it's, it's difficult to exaggerate. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. And, and it's just because we've gotten to this point of us versus them. Um, there is no, like I said, we're stuck in this place of the eternal present. Where well, and what does it say about our fellow Americans that they saw fit? Regular, normal, working class people saw fit to send this woman millions of dollars to thank her 
for standing up for terrorists. I mean, because seriously, were... though, right? I mean, doesn't doesn't that mean I bet the FBI, honestly, I think the FBI ought to be looking into everybody sending that woman money. It's um, you're kind of just at a loss for words sometimes when you when you when you hear it from someone else, when, when someone tells you that it's. Uh, it just kind of blows your mind. They that, might as well write a check to the Taliban. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I heard them call it Al Qaeda. That's what I heard before. <laughs> and remember, tr- Trump. Trump is the guy who uh, wanted to invite the Taliban to Camp David. Oh boy. Um, of course, I'm not. I'm not thrilled with Biden pulling out of Afghanistan either. That's uh, he was basically continuing Trump's populist anti uh, foreign policy establishment agenda. Mm-hmm. There, I I think that's awful. And I'm rather surprised he did it after he, he put in a a, a smart um, neocon like. Anthony Blinken as secretary of state. I'm sure Blinken. Well, and I know, I mean, from reporting, all of Biden's foreign policy advisors said this is a dumb idea. We only have a few thousand people there. What I don't understand is, especially coming from the alt-right, but the left as well, on some level, you know, most Americans are pro-military to a certain extent. Like maybe the left thinks the military should be smaller. The alt-right still thinks the military should have a really high budget. But they, what they seem to agree on is that we definitely don't want to have all of these people who are being employed by our tax dollars have anything to do. <laughs> God forbid that we actually use all that military money to accomplish anything in the world. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of foreign policy, um, something that really resonates with a lot of these people in in these crazy towns um, is the uh, sort of slogan, America first, right? The uh, I'm sure you've you know, heard that from a lot of conservatives that you talk to, or it's just, it's just in the news. Well, I don't use the word conservative to describe Trump voters, but I take your point. <laughs> yeah. So that, that I mean, what are they trying of, to conserve uh, exactly? I, I see them as a, a, an absolute threat to the status quo. Yeah. Yeah. The, the sort of uh, sentiment of America first, um, I think it's important that we actually evaluate what that means because that is something that was repeated throughout Trump's campaign constantly. Uh, and through a lot of his sycophants who continue to run for office. I mean, America first. I mean, it's more of a reference back to that first appeared back in the 1930s. So let's let's kind of contrast that with um, or kind of compare that to what was happening in the 1930s with the Holocaust, right? So America could have taken in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Jewish refugees, right? But we chose not to under the guise of America first. We have to look out for Americans first. So this made it really hard for like the Jewish Americans to talk about the events unfolding in Europe because they essentially kind of painted themselves in the corner because those America first crowd were saying, well, you know, you're not really caring about America. You're caring about the Jews in some other country. But who are we talking about when we say America? Shouldn't it be Americans first? That's different, right? We're talking about the people, not the country. So, and when we say Americans, we're actually just saying some Americans who kind of look like us and they have no exposure. Like these people that I'm talking about, who I talk to all the time, they are the most, they're scared to death. They're terrified. They're terrified because we have people at the top telling them there is a crisis at the border. I agree that there is a situation at the border that needs to be resolved, but it is not. It is an asylum and refugee crisis, not sometimes caused by countries 
including ours, for humanitarian crises. But we have we have these people in these communities who have no exposure to any other types of life or ways of life other than their own who are terrified that their way of life is going to change, even if their way of life is bad. You know, they live in these communities. I mean, this isn't to shame anybody for being poor, but a lot of these communities are very poor. The job, the opportunities for high paying jobs are non-existent. The diseases of despair, like where I'm from, meth is a huge problem. Uh, meth, oh, uh, painkillers, just over the, not over the counter, but prescription drugs. Um, it's a gigantic issue and they know it. But as long as somebody else is suffering more, they're okay. So we're just being constantly pitted against each other, and the online well, if you sphere think about it, makes it think, worse. think about how absurd it is that Trump has managed to persuade these people. The reason their lives in these poor flyover states is so shitty has nothing to do with the Republican politicians who actually represent their local areas. <laughs> right. The right. people who actually have the ability to to uh, make things better or worse for them in, in on the ground, they have nothing to do with it. Right. No, it's like it's, uh, you know, um, Democrats in big cities on the coast are somehow doing that to them. It's absurd. It's absurd. And, you know, like what, one of my uh, um, intellectual heroes, uh, David Frum. Um, is talking all the time about how the Republican Party simply is not and cannot be the play the role of a center right party in American politics anymore. How could it? How how could it be the party of capitalism when it's dependent electorally upon the votes of poor working class people in states that take more in federal benefits than they contribute in federal taxes? They're literally welfare states. Um, right. Meanwhile, if you look at the, the richest states and the richest districts within even red states, they're all blue, right? College educated people, professionals, capitalists, they tend to vote blue to the extent that a, um, a rich liberal would consider voting for a Republican for mayor in New York or something like that. They're voting for a liberal Republican who agrees with them is, moderate on social issues and just wants to lower the tax rate or something, right? I mean, at this point, there's a there's a coalition shift going on. And people like me, who are economically and in terms of foreign policy conservative, I used to call myself socially progressive, but I'm actually even a little bit socially conservative by the standard of, of my generation, because I think that some of the woke politics has gone too far. Um. I'm voting Democrat now because the Democratic establishment represents those traditionally right wing and conservative values better than Trump's weird ass National Socialist Nazi Party does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that 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 seems to be uh, kind of the reason why Georgia went blue this time, uh, not necessarily a, a lot of the ideological shift, but also something that is extremely relevant that the right the current right is trying to do is stop people from voting. Um, in Georgia, I mean, Georgia is one of the high, high kind of profile cases right now when it comes to the, uh, the new voting laws. Uh, but it's a sentiment shared throughout a lot of the country right now, especially by the right, where they're, they're putting forth policy that's just inherently anti-democratic. And why? Why is that? Um, well, when we expanded 
the act, the ability to vote, when we made it easier to vote by mail, when we implemented drop boxes for mailing, more people voted. And it just so happens that the Democratic Party is pushing policies that are more popular in America. And if the Republicans don't stop people from voting, they're not going to win. Yeah. So let's go back to the, the policy thing, because I, I, I we agreed that Bernie Sanders obviously cares about um, workers in a way that Trump clearly does not. Right. Um, you have to be quite credulous to think that Donald Trump cares. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't. Um, about he cares, other he cares about so. maintaining his own power and he'll say whatever it takes to do it. Right. He, in, in, yeah. in a way, it's funny because people think of him as not being a politician. I mean, he was the president of the United States. He's a politician. And um, he's kind of an idiot, but he's a pretty good politician. He knows how to read a crowd and tell people what they want to hear. That's what that's what cynical politicians like Donald Trump do. Right. So we agree that Bernie Sanders is more sincere and does care about workers. But let's talk about policy, because you talked about upward mobility for a little bit. And um, I don't know. Did you read uh, Daniel Markovitz's book, uh, Meritocracy Trap, came out recently? I, I have not. No, I, I should put that on my list. Um, Yeah. So he he makes the point and backs it up with a bunch of data that in a lot of ways, our society has actually become more meritocratic. So his argument, and this is a guy who self-identifies as center left. Um, he supports uh, uh, a UBI. He supports um, a, a, a temporary one-time wealth tax um, and a, a number of other things like that, that some of his policies are, are too left-wing for me. But the point being, he thinks of himself as a center left guy and his argument kind of goes against the left-wing orthodoxy, which is he doesn't argue that meritocracy is fake. He argues that it is kind of a toxic way of thinking about our fellow citizens, um, that it leads toward uh, elites having less compassion for people because they think they deserve to suffer the consequences of their failure to succeed. Um, it leads toward uh, people feeling like they deserve to keep the money that they earned, et cetera, right? And it's an interesting it's an interesting criticism, and I found it much more persuasive than the the usual left wing argument. Um, and I am a person who, while I am on the right, I'm very comfortable compromising with the left. Um, so, basically, like some of the the data that he points out is that the upward mobility. You're right. You're right. It's exactly correct. About ninety percent of people had a had a better chance of um, had a ch about ninety percent of people had a better than fifty fifty chance. This is the way the numbers work out of being better off than their parents, right? Uh, in the recent mm -hmm. past, today that's still true, but it's only true about the bottom thirty percent of the economic ladder. So if you're born into the in, your parents are in the bottom thirty percent, which is poverty, working right. poor. Um, then you still have a better than 50-50 chance of being better off than your parents. Um, however, if you are in the broad middle, it's stagnant now. And I think part of that is because um, there's a, a certain amount of diminishing returns. The middle class grew and grew and grew, and eventually people make it to the middle. Um, and if you talk to some people on the left, and I know you're not like this, Dylan, but some people on the left seem to think that there's like something – immoral about anybody ever doing better than the middle <laughs> right so right so if you think about it it's a little hypocritical for those that particular style of leftist to to talk about you know the lack of upward mobility from the middle which is what the data actually tells us because they don't want people to get higher than the middle because then they're rich and the rich are evil right um <laughs> so there's that but i i mean i think that that uh, obviously it's undeniable that 
certain things about some of Bernie Sanders' policies would help a lot of people in certain specific ways. That's true, right? Obviously, a poor person is better off with health care than without it, right? Um, that sort of thing. They're better off with food stamps than without it, et cetera. And then, yeah, yeah. Right. But if the problem, if the upper mobility among the actual poor remains strong, um, and the problem is that the middle class is stagnant and it's not growing anymore, I would argue that some, that, that instead of, for example, a federal jobs guarantee, um, or hiking taxes on the middle class to fund even more generosity toward the poor, we should do something like Andrew Yang's UBI, because not only does that help the poor, but it, it empowers them in a way that welfare doesn't, um, because they can spend it in the real market instead of the welfare market. That gives them more freedom, more economic freedom, right? And because they can keep earning it, even if their income goes up. So if they get a job or a raise or whatever, they can keep earning it, unlike welfare, which goes away, right? But it also... And I never hear anybody on the left talk about this, but it also acts as de facto tax relief for the middle class. If the middle class is having trouble escaping the middle class and becoming upper middle class, which means they need to have some passive income, they need to invest some money, um, let them keep some more of their money, right? Yeah. I mean, and I that's, a, that's a center-right solution to that problem. Like, not all good things come from the left. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I, you know... When you say middle class, it always strikes me as, I don't want to say vague, but we have to define what we mean by the middle class. Because if you're thinking middle, obviously there's a low and a high. And when we think about the amount of money that has accumulated at the top or has been multiplied and went to the top, um, it seems that the middle that what we're referring to as the middle class isn't actually the middle when you consider how much wealth there actually is. Um, when I think middle class, which I don't know if this is what you think, but when I think middle class, I think somebody making between, uh, I mean, I don't know, 50 to $75,000 a year. Is that, is that middle? Is that working poor? But what do you think? Uh, well, in obviously I can't go into extreme detail um, by memory, but I would just suggest to the listeners read that book. Uh, cause it's yeah. very data backed up. And so he's very specific. He says exactly what he means. So when he talks about the bottom 30%, he means bottom 30% of households, um, by income, uh, wealth, et cetera. Right. So actually just hard numbers, not, not some kind of philosophical vague definition, right? That's just, these are, these are the bottom 30% economically speaking in the country, right? That upper mobility remains strong. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the gap between the haves and the have-nots really exists between, frankly, the upper middle class and the upper class. That's where it's really happening. They're, the middle class is stagnant. It's not growing richer. Um, the children of the middle class are not being better off than their parents. So if you were born into a middle class family, you're probably going to be middle class. That's just all there is to it, right? That's what the data tells us. Right, right. Um, and and by middle class, I, I understand. Lower, middle, upper, upper, middle, Right. That like honestly, the distinctions between those three categories are tiny in comparison to the difference between somebody like me, who I consider myself upper middle class. Some people would call me upper class, frankly, and Jeff Bezos, who's the real upper. And class, then it just right? yeah, yeah just exactly. Like That's where move. the real gap is. And so I I think that the left and the right, Yang Gang Humanity First is a great way to go about this. Should work together to make sure that the poor continues to have high high mobility. That's a good thing, right? But that also that the middle class 
can start, you know, frankly, um, succeeding better by not allowing the government to take so much of their money from them all the time. I mean, this we got into this idea, this trap, that the only way you can fund the government is through income taxes. And that's just not true. Yang's value-added tax is actually a, a much better way of taxing the Jeff Bezoses of this world. Why should all government policy fall on my shoulders instead of Jeff's? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, they, they do that in Europe already, um, from what I understand. That's correct. Value-added yeah. tax. And you know, it's not necessarily about funding the government more. It's about allocating the resources of that funding better. Um, you know, you were talking about the military earlier and a lot of, a lot of people on the left, including myself, I do agree. I do agree that, that the military is too large, um, to an extent. I mean, the budget is enormous, enormously bloated. And should that money somehow be reinvested back into stuff that could very well lift people out of poverty. So l- let me just, let me just give you an example. So something like Bernie Sanders says, like for a single payer healthcare system or, uh, some sort of Medicare for all that would encompass everyone, like England's National Health Health Institute or Health Healthcare Industry, where I recently had uh, surgery on my knee. Um, no, I'll give you a better example. Um, I'm going to go into a little bit of my personal life here. My mother had died when I was. Uh, this was in 2017. She in Marjorie Taylor Greene's district. She worked at a grocery store, you know, making like nine bucks an hour. Uh, so we were pretty poor growing up and she worked there. They did not provide health insurance for her, even though she worked full time or mostly full time. She worked at home as a caregiver to my grandmother, couldn't afford to go to the doctor, uh, relatively unhealthy, um, worked and worked and worked. Eventually she had a pulmonary embolism and died, uh, because she broke her foot and couldn't afford to go to the doctor. Now, had we had some sort of system that was funded by the taxpayer like her and like all the other working people in in the country you don't need to make 50 60 70 thousand dollars a year i'm not saying that you want to be stuck making thirty thousand dollars a year but somebody making thirty thousand dollars a year that has access to go to the doctor whenever they want to versus someone making fifty thousand dollars a year who it costs them thousands of dollars every single year to go to the doctor who's really better off right that that's that's kind of what i'm getting out with the reallocation of the tax dollars. She may, she may very well still be alive had we had some sort of system like that. Yeah. And um, I, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of, of healthcare policy, but that is an area where I'm, I am happy to compromise with the left and um, people who are curious to see what my um, proposed uh, compromise is can check it out at movingforwardpod.com. And then just go to policy. You can read it there. Uh, it does include the left will be happy to hear a form of universal health care. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that seems to be a big issue that a lot of people are mm-hmm. on the right or coming around on. I've got a coworker who is, I mean, he just claims to be a Republican all the time. And he comes up to me sometimes and he's like, I'm so sorry I voted for Trump. And I'm like, you know what? I understand. You know, I, you, you didn't want to get rid of the red tie. I understand. But. I'm glad you're coming around. He's like, you know, I really think a single payer healthcare system would be good for us. And I was like, he's like, but I'm still going to vote for Republican. And I'm like, I just don't understand why. Why are you so? <laughs> like, people are just so stuck to their because labels, of abortion you know? or guns or any number of wedge issues. The thing Something, is, though, yeah. the, the, I, this kind of takes us full circle. We'd have to start wrapping up, but it kind of takes us full circle back to our main topic of Crazy Town. Um, you know, you know all of this. Just quick rundown. 
most of our listeners know this too, but just to provide context for our analysis here, right? Um, the Democratic Party moved right under the third way after the fall of the Soviet Union. The Clintons were a big part of that. Mm-hmm. When that happened, a lot of neoliberal and neoconservative people like myself started feeling comfortable voting for Democrats. I was still a registered Republican, but I was voting for, I was a swing voter effectively, you know? Um, and when that happened, the GOP needed to fill that gap somehow. And they did it through the Southern strategy by appealing to, and this is obviously an oversimplification, but generally this is kind of how it plays out. And the Southern strategy had been going on before this, but it was definitely instrumental in helping to fill that gap after the third way. And they did it by attracting ex Dixiecrats who were never properly right wing, at least not economically. And, um, and they were disenchanted with the Democrats because the Democrats had embraced civil rights and because the Democrats had moved somewhat right on economic issues. And it started to become about social issues at that time for a lot of voters because their reason for voting Republican was, well, there's nobody who's really doing like traditional FDR style politics right now. I might prefer that economically speaking. But I'm going to vote because I don't think that we should be killing babies and I don't want the Dems to take my guns from me. Right. Um, Now, I'm very pro gun rights. I'm also pro choice. I think that that is the intellectually consistent position because I'm actually libertarian. Um, But I have to say, those are wedge issues that Republicans use to persuade economic lefties to vote for them. And for a long time, it worked. Republicans still passed relatively right-wing policy. Um, But Trump came along and what he did was he basically handed the reins of the GOP off to those ex-Dixiecrats. And now the Republican Party is shrinking. um, And it's basically the new Confederacy, right? And of course, the original Confederacy were all Democrats. But that was a long time ago. And I know Republicans like to say that. But nowadays, like who's flying, who's flying the Confederate flags now? They're right next to MAGA flags. I'm just saying. Yeah. And MAGA lost. Right. So uh, so did the Confederacy. The Confederacy lasted five years, maybe. I call uh, Trump the patron saint of losers. (laughs) It's kind of the same crowd sometimes. You know, the people waving the Confederate flags, the the flag of uh, treasonous uh, idiots. (laughs) You know, they're they're hanging on to a moment that never really was. so it I is think- insane, and I think it's fair to say um, that the crazy town is the population of crazy town is mostly alt right, uh, which is not the traditional right, but alt right uh, for sure. That's what they call themselves. Uh, it is mostly Republicans who are in crazy town. Um, what do you think about the the denizens of crazy town on the left? You see them on Twitter. I don't know if they represent a really significant percentage of the actual electorate, but they're certainly loud on Twitter. What do you take? What do you think about all that, Dylan? Um, you know, it's sort of a similar feel where there's a little too much condemnation for me. It's that, it's that hyper pessimism, right? The not saying that because they want a better world, but it seems like all that the far left likes to focus on is really what's wrong. Absolving yourself of what we can do, what we should do, and just focus on what Republicans are doing and how that's bad, or how people on the right, what they're doing is really bad, 
Oh, um, and Democrats and, too. They hate Democrats and Democrats just yeah. as much as Trump voters do. I've noticed. I don't hate the Democrats, but I find myself getting frustrated. You know, I'm not well, going to. I sit mean, you're here not and, you're not paying yeah. attention if you're not frustrated. That's a different thing. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and you know, it's sort of that. Uh, once you venture from the inevitability perspective to eternity, you, if the nostalgia and the, uh, if the nostalgia and the make America great again, doesn't resonate with you, what you'll sort of go to instead of that optimism, like an energy that, that they, that the others have, it sort of becomes a negative pessimism that sort of drains and it allows, it allows the leaders who are in place to, to govern from a place of, you know, economic inequality, like we're seeing now. And if everyone is caught in this, you know, loop of eternity constantly, and we don't look to the future, we're going to look across the aisle, and we're going to look at each other. And that means government no longer has to really promise anything. So they just sit up there and act as the arbiter or the moderator between two sides that are fighting each other. And all the while they get our money, they take a fewer and fewer, ta- fewer, and fewer taxes from the rich and, you know, just sit on the sit on the throne of government and don't really do anything. And uh, we've sort of come into this us versus them. And um, it just seems we're stuck. And uh, yeah. I, 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 I hope that our podcast left in the basement and yours can reach out to those people and, and provide that sort of space that they're not allowed to in their community, because who are they going to talk to other like-minded people? That's kind of, you're in your pocket. You're in your, even online, you're in your pocket. The algorithms know who's close to you. They know who you interact with. They know what gets you fired up and what keeps you online. And typically what keeps you online, it's proven, is more inflammatory content and inflammatory, dishonest content. It's what keeps you on. And so it's profitable. The the sort of attention economy that we have is far too profitable and valuable to actually back down and see well, What's it, really it, going it, on? It's frankly the fault of consumers more than anything, right? So the people listening to our podcasts are not part of the problem. But the people who are sending money in to the – I'm not going to name names, but we know them out there. The podcasts that are raking in massive amounts of money every month um, by pandering to the fringe on either side with misinformation and even spreading propaganda from foreign powers and everything that it, it's just frankly treasonous. Um, but they're making a lot of money and that's what it's about. And, and the ones on the left, it's especially funny because supposedly they think that making money is bad, but boy, are they getting rich doing it? <laughs> um, there's their listeners. Their listeners are the problem in that case. You know, I mean, that's, it keeps coming, keeps coming back to this, you know, like it, it, why, why, why would a moderate support Trump, a supposed moderate, somebody who calls themselves a moderate? Well, we talked about how some of his policies superficially seem moderate, um, especially if you overlook the fact that he's a threat to civilization itself. Um, but a lot of times that's what populists do. I mean, that's kind of what defines populism. It's like, we just want our policies and we don't care how you get it. We don't care if you have to break government to make it happen, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's that's messed up. But it's also because they point to the crazies on the left. And there are real life examples of it. I'm sorry. I know this is going to get me in trouble with some of my left wing listeners. But, you know, um, what was going on in Portland? It's pretty messed up. It's not okay. All right. And I don't think. But here's the thing. It wasn't Democrats doing that. And it wasn't even Black Lives Matter protesters doing that. Black Lives Matter is a good movement. And the Democrats are the defenders of liberty right now that's, that are in a country that's under threat from 
fascist alt-right assholes. But that's the problem, though, is as long as Fox News and Breitbart can make people associate the behavior of the crazies on the far left with the Democratic Party, they are going to use that as an excuse to tolerate the craziness in the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and associate it with Black Lives Matter, with any kind of movement for social justice, as long as – And it doesn't help that when when somebody who has Black Lives Matter in their Twitter profile defends the rioting in Portland. Right. Mm-hmm. Just don't do that. Right. Say, no, Black Lives Matter is a movement that does peaceful, peaceful protest. Democrats are opposed to rioting. That's all you have to say. If you defend it, then you're falling into their trap. Yeah. Yeah. And the 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 big distinction I would make here would be, like I said earlier, uh, too often we're focused on what people are doing and not how or not why they're doing it and how they came to the conclusions that led them to it. So um, while I don't obviously condone the rioting i understand you know uh, there's a lot of people who because there's rioters there's looters and there's the protesters right the protesters are the people who are out there peacefully standing and waiting uh until inevitably rioters come who are angry who are um energized who feel they have no other no other option than to break destroy um you know, uh, burn the city essentially. Um, and the police, uh, there's, there's just this kind there's, it's like a time bomb. Every time there's a protest, there's a time bomb waiting to see what happens first. Well, yes, but also just compare, compare how Joe Biden speaks about that. Right. Does he, does he defend the rioters? (laughs) Right. To how Trump speaks speaks about the insurrection, right? They are comparable. They are both bad. I understand. I agree with your point. I mean, if we want to, you know, turn the temperature down, we need to understand what leads people toward insanity. But the last thing we need is any influential high-level politician defending that kind of completely inappropriate behavior. Listen to the concerns of people, but make it clear that that behavior is inappropriate and you will be prosecuted. Yeah. And, and, but, but I would say, I would, I would add that Joe Biden, while he does uh, condemn the riots uh, with, with Black Lives Matter or with the, the June the 6th uh, riots. He does not condemn the police who often instigate some of these 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 violent outbreaks. Uh, thing, things don't really escalate to that point until the police show up in, in a lot of these instances. And Joe Biden's always been hesitant to criticize the police uh, in I, any regard. OK, I'm going to push back on that slightly. I agree to a certain extent. I, I agree that um, – if, especially if you're talking about a peaceful Black Lives Matter protest that got a little out of hand, right? Mm-hmm. That definitely does seem to be a situation where the police handled the situation poorly, right? In many cases, right? Not always, but in many cases. And I, I agree with that. But also, Joe Biden is uh, supporting all kinds of progressive police reforms, isn't he? Right? So got to keep in mind, pragmatically speaking, Americans don't tend to like to vote for people who badmouth the police, he can't make changes if he doesn't win. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So there's that. And, and, but yeah. I, I take your point. But like I said, I'm making a distinction between that. I don't actually see Black Lives Matter as a problem. I think Antifa is a bigger problem. And I do not think that, that Antifa is – I don't think it's Democrats. I, I don't think that it's undercover Trump people. I think that it's far-left anarchists who – it should not need to be explained – don't tend to like – 
the Democratic Party or the Republican Party because they're fucking far left anarchists. <laughs> and they're not just people where it got out of hand with the cops. They're people who are consciously taking advantage of the fog of war to do stupid things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was I was actually saying uh, making the distinction between the rioters, protesters, and looters. Once you get to the looters, you know we always have to ask. We get caught up. Well, well, they're using the protest to steal a TV. They're 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 stealing stuff they don't even need. And it's like, well, let's just take a step back here. Obviously, I don't I don't agree that they should steal anything. Of course, but what got them to that point? Right? It just seems that what got them to the point where they felt like the thing that would make them happy or the thing that would bring them some sort of relief would be to walk through a broken window at 2 a.m. with fire in the streets and people being shot to get a TV. You know what I'm saying? We're just not – a lot of our politics right now just seems very surface level, and I hope that we can get to a point where we dig deeper and connect to each other's humanity. Like yeah, well, I mean there. obviously I agree with that and humanity first, and you're you're a better exemplar of that than I am. Um, but I, you know, I, at my best, I, I, I try to do that. I do think, though, that it can go too far. I mean we don't want to be total bleeding hearts. I mean criminals sure. are still criminals. I understand everybody has a sob story, but at some point you got to hold people accountable for criminal acts. Um, I, I, and, you know, like I think that some of the people who are doing the writing probably are – um, and, and some of Antifa too. They're motivated. I think actually, I think Antifa is very sincerely motivated. I think they're motivated by a sincere belief that uh, liberal democracy is a horrible system that's oppressive and imperialistic and blah, 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 blah. And that they are naive enough to think that anarchy is anything other than a temporary state um, that usually is filled by, you know, some kind of uh, dictatorship, not by a liberal democracy. Um, because liberal democracies are hard to build. They're hard to build. They're easier to tear down than they are to build. Um, Everything is. So, you know, I, 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 guess I, I guess what I'm saying is like for those that do have sincere beliefs behind it, that doesn't really let them off the hook in my opinion, although I do agree that it's important to understand them. Um, and in terms of criminality, I don't think that we should be overly punitive. I have a whole episode about that with Chet on free will and the justice system. Um, I think that our criminal justice system needs a, to, a lot of reforms but i also think criminals need to be punished sometimes you know not <laughs> like it's just that is that you know yeah um, yeah, and, yeah and not only that but optics in terms of optics and politics is optics in terms of optics defending criminals and attacking cops is not a good way to, to win elections in the united states yeah and and it would always be important to make the distinction as to what makes someone a criminal right like when like when we're talking about um, the crime actually being uh, that someone's being accused of, right? So, driving around with an expired tag, you know, that's a that's a crime. So, it, it, it's a little different than someone uh, being murdered or <laughs> or someone coming out and destroying property. Well, uh, agreed. Know, no, that, it's and and lots of things that are crimes shouldn't be crimes. I agree with that, mm -hmm. right? Like I said, yeah, there are lots exactly. of reforms. Definitely check out that episode with Chet on uh, free will and the justice system for sure. Criminal justice reform. Um, and I, I'm saying that for you if you didn't hear it, Dylan, but also for the listeners if they haven't heard it yet. Sure. Uh, yeah, so, I'll check like, it out. Uh, you'll, you'll understand. I do, I do appreciate the need for criminal justice reform. I'm not saying otherwise. I'm simply saying don't be like Donald Trump. Donald Trump is defending cop killers. Don't do it. It's a bad look. And he lost as an incumbent because he sucks.
All right, Dylan. <laughs> uh, I'm going to give you the final word. Moving forward is our gumbo. Yes, and maybe you should also tell people one last time where they can find your podcast. Absolutely. So you can go to leftinthebasement.com. We're forwarded to our uh, anchor.fm page. Uh, if you, We have about eight episodes out now. I think three of them are with more conservative-leaning uh, voices. We've got, some, we've got a local politician on there from DeKalb County in Atlanta. Um, he's the District 6 Commissioner, uh, Ted Terry. You can check him out. He's got a lot of good stuff about how you can – uh, think globally, but act locally. I love that he said that on our program. That's just something that just really resonated with me when I talked to him about climate change. Um, he's big into climate change activism. Um, so check it out. Uh, if you like it, just you know, hit the support button and give just a dollar a month, and uh, it would really go a long way. Blaine's computer is broken right now, so we could really use the help in uh, getting that setup back up. Great. Thanks for coming on, Dylan, and I'd like to come on your podcast sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. We'd love to have you. As you said, moving forward is our gumbo. Thank you very much for listening to the Moving Forward podcast. Together, through these conversations, we are all working to ensure that the Humanity First movement keeps moving forward. If you haven't yet, please visit our website at movingforwardpod.com, where you can support our Patreon. We will use those funds to advertise, to grow our audience so more people hear these important conversations. Thank you very much.